This week on The Take, we're marking one year since a pair of devastating earthquakes hit Turkey and Syria with a new digital interactive. Listen and watch stories of survival, recovery, and coping with the grief at aljazeera.com forward slash earthquakes. Again, that's aljazeera.com forward slash earthquakes. Hellish scenes in the Gaza Strip as Israel's onslaught continues into the last supposed safe zone in the south. Cooking tips from the front lines. Israeli soldiers gorge on stolen food as Gazans starve. Patriotic lessons in the classroom and military activities after school. It's what happens when Kremlin propaganda is part of the curriculum. For more than four months, the world has watched as Israeli forces have mowed their way down the length of the Gaza Strip. The last major hospital, Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunis, was stormed this past week. Details of what's taken place there are horrific. Further south, more than a million Palestinians have been crammed into the city of Rafah, where the threat of an Israeli ground invasion looms. The stated goal is to eliminate Hamas's leadership and rescue more hostages. But there's also the spectre of Palestinians being forced over the border into Egypt. The fact that this war has reached this point, where the almost complete depopulation of Gaza is a real possibility, and where even an order from the International Court of Justice seems unable to prevent it, reflects a global failure to hold Israel accountable. Western media outlets, which minimize Israel's atrocities and amplify its propaganda, exemplify that failure. All eyes are on the south of Gaza and Rafah. The question is, how much longer will the annihilation go on? Rafah at this stage in the war represents the distillation of a concerted strategy on the part of Israel to effectively depopulate the Gaza Strip under the pretense of self-defense and a war against Hamas. Prior to October 7th, Gaza was described as an open-air prison. Today, I don't know if there's really a description for it besides a very, very, very densely populated concentration camp. And that concentration camp's name is Rafah. In a war of horrors, the images from southern Gaza have given new potency to the very notion of horror. The corralling of a desperate population, 1.5 million Palestinians in the city of Rafah has the air of an endgame. The majority of people there are refugees from elsewhere in Gaza. They're living in tents. Any possibility of safety has evaporated. There are bombs from the sky, a looming ground invasion, and even in supposed non-combat zones, there are targeted drone attacks, such as the one on two Al Jazeera journalists in Rafah. A wretched situation for Gazans has become much more so. Israel has killed nearly 30,000 Palestinians. Thousands more are missing under the rubble. More than a million Palestinians are now stuck in Rafah, a so-called safe zone, but Israel is bombing there. We have Palestinians who are displaced from their homes. They're diseased. They're living under tents in the cold, without limbs, without family members. And they're just staying there with nowhere to go. You've had these people in Gaza being penned closer and closer into a corner. And you can sense that there's an end game where, I mean, either the Palestinians will have to be pushed out to the sea or into Egypt, right? Those are really the only two options, it seems. And the sense is that you are now, well, putting Palestinians in a kill zone. 
The ethnic cleansing being carried out by Israel has been justified domestically and internationally by an endlessly looping narrative of a battle for survival against Hamas. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu showed up on American news channels last week, making the case for the invasion of Rafah. We have already destroyed three quarters of the Hamas organized terrorist battalions. Three quarters, 18 out of 24. We're not going to leave the other six. It's like you leaving a quarter of ISIS in Iraq Netanyahu's talking points were packed with stats about Hamas losses that no one has been able to verify. And of course, there was the trope created by Israel since October 7th of Hamas being the same as ISIS. Obviously, ISIS would re-establish itself. Hamas, ISIS would re-establish itself too. A fundamental piece of the war narrative that Netanyahu reiterates virtually every time he gets in front of a camera is of the October 7th operation by Hamas against Israel. Put yourself in Israel's shoes. Uh, we were attacked, unprovoked attack, murderous attack on October 7th. For many Israelis, October 7th is not something that just ended on October 7th. Every single day, almost 24 hours a day, the coverage is, is all about what happened on that day. There's constantly new testimony from, from victims, from survivors from those now that are coming back from being hostage in Gaza. And those stories are constantly being shown to Israelis, um, and very much it's still part of the discourse. It is Israel's quote-unquote 9-11, the worst tragedy that has befallen Israel since the Holocaust. And that juxtaposition of the Holocaust on October 7th is a strategic decision that marries those two narratives and explains that the only way to avoid a future Holocaust for Israel is this war. It doesn't matter how far we've traveled in terms of days uh, and weeks and months, or even in terms of how much change has happened on the ground, the costs of lives to Palestinians. Nothing equates with the losses of October 7th. The laser-like focus from Israeli news outlets on the October 7th attacks has a flip side, an almost total erasure of the suffering their army has inflicted on the people of Gaza. The situation in Gaza is largely absent from the coverage altogether, that it's just focused right now on the Israeli narrative and what the IDF is presenting of what's happening in Gaza and not necessarily about the civilians are being impacted. If you do have some sort of coverage about the civilian situation in Gaza, it's usually at minute 40 of the first hour of the main news broadcast. Western news outlets have a habit of downplaying atrocities committed by Israel's military. Last week, the IDF launched a bombing raid in Rafah, which they said secured the release of two Israeli hostages. Big news also late last night, the Israeli military rescuing two hostages from southern Gaza in a special forces operation. This is video the hostage rescue dominated the headlines. Relegated to the margins was the fact that more than 70 Palestinians were killed in the process. The reporting falls within a pattern that has repeated itself across the decades of the Israel-Palestine conflict and has been glaringly evident during this war. It's clear that Western media's coverage has been, I have to say, lacking. And of course, uh, you know, I say this and, and I'm a member of that matrix of the Western media. But at the same time, if you consider the way this has been done, the language that we use, right, the stories that we amplify, etc., 
I mean, the main picture you get, of course, is, is that the suffering of Israelis is more important, right? More significant. There are so many factors that contribute to the bias that we see every day. Things like using emotive language, calling uh, the killing of Israelis a slaughter, a massacre, but the killing of nearly 30,000 Palestinians is not described as such. We look at the AP headline where they call children minors. There's a deliberate omission of Palestinian humanity in Western media, and it needs to be questioned, and these organizations need to be held accountable. The culmination and the outcome of this type of sustained coverage that actively humanizes Israelis and actively dehumanizes Palestinians is the fact that it cultivates a sensitization for Israeli loss and a complete desensitization to Palestinian loss. So we can continue to see Palestinians be killed in mass and not bat an eyelid, because what a Palestinian is good for is to die, you know? But on the contrary, Israeli lives are lives to be rescued. The continued arming of a military that does this to Palestinians is justified on the grounds that it is saving humans from non-humans. The United States has been Israel's chief sponsor and support, not just during this war. It's a relationship that has spanned decades. Israel is the military power it is today, thanks to the aid the US has supplied, amounting to $300 billion since the country's creation. Since Israel launched its war on Gaza in October last year, President Biden has opened the coffers even wider bypassing Congress to send tens of billions of dollars more in weapons and ammunition with no restrictions on their use. Those actions speak louder than the statements of concern from Washington as Israeli forces close in on the Palestinians in Rafah. The, the major military operation in Rafah should not proceed without a credible plan, a credible plan for ensuring the safety and support of more than one million people sheltering there. They need to be protected. There is a performance of concern for Palestinian lives and at least an implication that there is some dialogue between the Biden administration and the Netanyahu uh, government over the conduct of the war. Um, whether that is true or not, uh, in fact, nothing has changed on the ground. I would argue the Biden administration has actually doubled down on trying to help Israel. I mean, for weapons deliveries, that's all being fast-tracked. I mean, oftentimes it's happening now without Congress. So this situation really encapsulates, I think, the schizophrenic nature of what we see from the U.S. administration, where on the one hand, you know, we will have these, you know, occasionally, let's say, you know, opprobrium-filled uh, statements saying that Israel must do better, blah, blah, blah. And then on the other hand, you see them really ramping up support, and diplomatically, they're shoring it up. And if you look at sort of the images that come out of Rafah, it's the desperation that now seems to be much more than before. You know, there's a sense that really it's the end and there's nowhere else to go. Israel is using starvation as a weapon of war in Gaza. Some Israeli officials have been quite open about it, which made a story this week in the Haaretz newspaper about Israeli soldiers feasting in Palestinian homes, all the more sickening. Nick has more on that story. As you say, Mina, northern Gaza is facing a famine. However, the article profiled Israeli soldiers who have made themselves at home in Palestinian households, cooking meals with the, quote, delicious ingredients they find. 
The article reads like a lifestyle column, not something written in the middle of a war zone. And what it does not say is that those Israeli soldiers are in kitchens belonging to displaced Palestinians, and the food they are eating has been looted. The article did say that the soldiers had mixed feelings about what they were doing, but made peace with it because, quote, the better we ate, the better we fought. But again, no mention of the latest figures from the World Food Program, which says that many Palestinians are now eating half a meal every two days. The taunting of hungry Gazans has become habitual in Israel. For months, soldiers have been posting videos of their meals, the kitchens they've pillaged, and even the food stores and supplies they've destroyed. Israeli businesses have made promotional videos of the food carts they've sent to troops on the front lines. Israeli activists and settlers have physically stopped food aid from entering Gaza. But the fact that Haaretz, a paper that once had a reputation for being left-leaning and critical of the occupation, is publishing this kind of content shows in the Israeli media there are vanishingly few voices of reason. Thanks, Nick. On to another war, the one that began in February 2022 with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Since then, the Kremlin has invested considerably in managing domestic perceptions of the war, including amongst younger citizens. Digital, mainstream and alternative media are used to disseminate partial facts, sometimes even outright fiction. School textbooks have been rewritten too. Ever since he came into power in 1999, Vladimir Putin and his government have invested in indoctrinating the youth, reforming school curricula, patriotic narratives in the classroom and youth armies. All of these have been long-standing elements in Moscow's campaign to mould the next generation. With the war dragging on, the government's youth propaganda has escalated. Educational institutions have become part of an orchestrated effort to shape loyal, militarized nationalists and passive media consumers. The listening posts Tarek Nafa now on the use of education in the Kremlin's propaganda machine. We see a very typical representation of a Russian schoolchild. She's, she's white, she is ethnically Russian, she's dressed in a perfect little dress and perfect little pigtails. She is the Putin government's representation of a sort of average Russian little girl. So what we see in the video are a number of myths and outright lies and conspiracy theories that explain that the war is really about Western powers using Ukraine as a, as a puppet regime to get at Russia. March 3rd, 2022, one week after Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. 13-year-old TV presenter and singer Sofia Khamenko is giving a lesson called Defenders of Peace. Broadcast online by Russia's Education Ministry, it's an introduction to the Kremlin's official narrative on the war, aimed at Sofia's peers, schoolchildren. Since the start of the war, Russia's youth have been a key target of the state's messaging. Last September, when students returned for the start of the school year, they found their history textbooks had been rewritten and a new class had been added to the syllabus. 
mandatory patriotism lessons called Important Conversations. Every Monday, first lesson in Russian schools uh, is dedicated to conversations about patriotism. Millions of children in Russia, unfortunately, are forced to listen to false arguments about politics, about patriotism, about war, about how important it is that Russian soldiers are in Ukraine and how Vladimir Putin is the only solution to all the problems in, in Russia. The New School History textbook is aimed at students who are about to leave school and students who might go on potentially to join the army. So history for them is a really vital part of educating them as future soldiers and as future regime supporters. What we see in the textbook is the Russians as victims surrounded by enemies, desperate to undermine Russia. And children are taught that they should be suspicious of so-called foreign agents, that they should be suspicious of any non-official media, because everything outside of the state, everything outside of Russia is full of lies and mistruths. Education is one of the most important vectors to try to spread the information. And the Russian government understands that this is a prolonged conflict and they are trying to spread their message to the younger people to cement this message across the country. The school children are encouraged to only trust the official sources. So it is quite an important portion trying to encourage certain one-sided consumption of news, but also it encourages people to just tune out of, of the news. A more nationalist vision of schooling that sees education as a carrier of patriotic values has been years in the making in Russia. After the fall of the Soviet Union, Moscow's oversight over education was tested. There was a lack of funding, a lack of vision. Some schools tried to westernize their curriculums, others embraced a more regional approach and began teaching in local languages. Everything changed when Vladimir Putin took office in 1999. Control over public education was gradually centralized. A new federal curriculum was introduced. And extracurricular nationalist groups were created with the aim of fostering a state-centered national identity. Putin's government recognized from the very beginning the importance of co-opting the youth, so, so to speak. Uh, during the 2000s, there were the popular youth movements, uh, Nashi, Molda Gvardia, those who proclaimed the support for Putin. And then uh, during the 2010s, uh, they were trying to lure younger people into government jobs and trying to present this option of, if you're not outspoken against the state, you're fine, you can have your beautiful life. We asked Russia's education ministry for an interview. They never got back to us. Since Russia invaded Ukraine in 2022, Russian society has been transformed fundamentally. Virtually all independent journalism inside the country has disappeared. Dissidents have been exiled, anti-war protests outlawed, which leaves Russia's youth with nobody to look up to, but voices endorsed by the Kremlin. They are being told to conform, starting in the classroom. Who is 
and who should be their heroes um, are of course the representatives of the system are of course the representatives of the state the government for example there is Tina Kandalaki she is a diva style anchor on a TV program for the kids she is talented she is bright and she is absolutely pro-Kremlin Сегодня хочу рассказать, в школах пройдут уроки разговора о важном по теме знания о героях. Media literacy means understanding that the state's media and the state's reality is the only media and the only reality that can be trusted. That children are told that figures like Alexei Navalny, Yekaterina Shulman, other opposition leaders, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, for example, are working with the CIA with America seeking to undermine Russia. And what children learn, therefore, is that their job is to repeat what they hear. Instilling young people with a sense of loyalty and dedication to the state is not just an ideological exercise. Russia is a country reliant on new conscripts. An undisclosed number of young soldiers have been killed in Ukraine. The Kremlin wants to increase its combat personnel by 30%. A more malleable, militarized generation of Russians will help with that. Across the country, the state has introduced war museums and memorials in schools. There are currently 22,000 of them in operation. It's part of a Putin directive to open museums in every region of Russia. They are places of commemoration, but of a distorted history, where young Russians are told that true patriotism comes with self-sacrifice. One of the more disturbing trends that we might see in Russian schools is plaques being erected to graduates of high schools who have died in the so-called special military operation, hailed as models of the best kind of Russian you can possibly be. So what we see with the museums that are being erected is that these are places of pilgrimage where Russians pay tribute to the sacrifices of the past and the sacrifices of the present, and in particular, the supposed utopia that's going to come from a future victory in the war against Ukraine and against the West. These museums are um, having just one main goal. They're trying to teach children that this war in Ukraine right now is something similar to the Second World War, uh, the Great Patriotic War. The problem is that in the Great Patriotic War, Soviet Union was saving the world from fascism. And right now, Russia is on the opposite side. That's why they're having such a big campaign, because it's really hard to explain what the hell is going on and why Russia is killing Ukrainians and why Russian soldiers are dying. In closing, a postscript to our lead report on the situation in the south of Gaza. There was a lot we could not include in that story. Images of Israel's killings of civilians that are too graphic. They serve as records of a war that has shattered multiple laws of combat and human rights. All of them need serious trigger warnings before we put them on the air. And yet, what we showed in our report and what this network broadcasts from Gaza on a daily basis is significantly more than what makes it onto many other outlets. We're approaching five months of this war, 
And while we will keep an eye on stories around the world, our focus will remain on Gaza. As the campaign to displace and ethnically cleanse Palestinians reaches its most dangerous phase, this is not the time for journalists to turn away. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post.